What is the best way to deliver bad news? Be honest and be in front of it. A unlock for trust and credibility was to become a credible source of information themselves about the good, the bad, and the ugly of their own impact. Real quick note, my family and I just got back from an incredible cruise with UnCruise. Now we'd experienced what cruising was like on a big ship with thousands of people. And frankly, it just wasn't for us. But this one was completely different. It was a small boat of less than 100. We had an amazing time where we saw whales and other wildlife, inspiring nature, hiking, kayaking, and bushwhacking, which is hiking without the trails. And we received incredibly personalized service guides who get you off the beaten path and gorgeous sunsets. Everything was so easy and with no lines. They provided incredible meals, including sustainable seafood, not to mention a list of impressive cocktails. My wife, daughter, and I loved it. When we returned, I asked UnCruise to become a show sponsor, and I was excited when they agreed. Right now, they're offering special deals on cruises in Baja, Mexico, and Alaska that includes the incredible luxury, service, and adventure that we experience. To learn more, go to benleads.com slash cruise. That's benleads.com slash cruise for the latest deals. Welcome back to Lead the Team with number one best-selling author and in-demand corporate trainer, Ben Fanning. On this podcast, the world's most innovative senior leaders share their top success strategies to motivate your direct reports, cultivate your top leaders, and accelerate your career. Let's get started. Here's Ben. Hey there, Lead the Team Nation. Welcome back to another great episode today I have for you, Chris Derry, who is president of corporate advisor of the corporate advisory business and chief corporate affairs officer at Weber Shanwick with the global PR and communications firm. He has decades of experience advising Fortune 500 CEOs and C-suite leaders on communications and reputation and stakeholder management, which we'll dive into today. And he's also worked in many global markets in different countries over the course of his storied career before PR and communications. Chris worked in U.S. presidential politics, AIDS advocacy, and has served on the boards of social justice and peace-building organizations. This experience has informed his leadership style, and we're going to get into it today, y'all. Chris, welcome to Lead the Team. Thank you very much. Glad to be here, Ben. So we got on here, and the first thing I saw was a terracotta warrior. Now, since we had a flip, and we flipped your camera around, so if you're watching on video, well, you can't see this cool thing, but there's a giant warrior standing over your back. What in the world is the Terracotta Warrior all about here? Well, the Terracotta Warrior is about the role that China has played in my entire adult life. When I first got out of college, there was a recession and uh, I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do as a political science major. So I was, you know, qualified to, you know, wait tables and talk politics. But the one thing that you could do with a college degree was you could go be a conversational English language teacher in China. So I went to what I call kind of like the Cleveland, Ohio of China, uh, Jinan, Shandong province, pretty industrial, but surrounded by a lot of agriculture, kind of, you know, salt of the earth, middle, middle America, except we're in China. a great NFL team. Great NFL, NFL team, team, yeah. And I was an English teacher there. And that was really interesting. Yeah. It was the early 90s. It was when China was opening up. It was when globalization, I think, was in kind of the prequel 
uh, you know, and and so I got to see another part of the world. And it was fortunate that obviously it was a part of the world that was then going to just have such a massive influence and impact, you know, for as it still does. Right. For the last 30 years. So I was there, came home. Uh, did some actually then I started an education exchange initiative to get people jobs teaching English in China and kind of being that cultural connection point because, you know, dropping, uh, you know, kind of a lot of times young Westerners and Americans into Chinese institutions, you can imagine just sort of the kind of cultural miscues that could occur. So I was uh, the elixir for those things. Well, and then just, you know, so you saw a business opportunity. And that, like, I had a great experience there. Now I'm going to step in and create my own exactly. service for that. Yeah. Um, very, very entrepreneurial. Yeah. And then China remained a part of my life. And, you know, then I, I, I was, as you mentioned, I, you know, I spent my 20s in, in politics uh, and in AIDS advocacy and things like that. But then when I started to have children and mortgages, I went into PR and, you know, I was a, at a big PR firm, Edelman, for about a decade. I was a global sustainability practice leader. And so I did a lot of work there in China. And then actually, when I then was a you know middle-aged guy with three tween daughters and a wife, um, we moved back to China. And I ran uh, the China operation, the China market, for another big global PR firm, Burson Marsteller, for a number of years. And that was really at the height of China's engagement sort of globally. I like to say I showed up when GDP peaked at 11.5%, and then I spent the next three years as it went down. <laughs> so, uh, it was interesting commercially. Mm. Then came back to the U.S. and then continued to work with Chinese clients, a lot of um, state-owned enterprises and, and private uh, Chinese companies trying to figure out the U.S. market. So China's been a part of my life for a long well, time. Okay, so first of all, why China? Of all the places on the earth, you went deep with. I saw. I literally saw an ad in the back of a magazine. Go teach English in China, and it sounded like that a was good it. Idea. Yeah. Just being open to the possibilities and that window of opportunity opened, and you went for it, and you doubled down again and again and again. Yeah. And now I'm assuming, and I want to spend tons of time on this, but you probably saw a lot of mistakes, probably some hilarious ones. What are the most? What are one of the more memorable mistakes that you saw? Uh, Westerners making and doing business uh, in, in, China. in China. Yeah, it's funny you say that. I, I did see it, right? So, okay, so I'm a PR guy, right? And we do crisis communications, we do government relations, we mm -hmm. do proactive PR, we do employee communications. I'll tell you a couple of mistakes I saw. So when big Western companies, American company, well, I'll just say I won't name the company, but. I had a client, a big oil company based in, in the United States, and they had operations in China with a uh, state-owned enterprise in a joint venture, which happens a lot, right? And they were, you know, had undersea oil development activities uh, in the Yellow Sea. And they had a spill. It wasn't a huge spill, but it was a spill. And they really misunderstood two things. They misunderstood what the partnership was with their joint venture partner, which was a state-owned enterprise. Mm -hmm. That was an arm of the Chinese government. And they kind of misunderstood that. They didn't understand that the, the state-owned enterprise was going to look at this not as another business that was in trouble with regulatory issues and things like that. This was an arm of the government. And they were going to look at it that way. That was that was mistake okay. number one. 
Mistake number two, in terms of how they managed the crisis, they tried to manage it from headquarters back in Texas. And the practicalities of that, like literally, you know, approvals for things from a time zone perspective, like just super simple practicalities got in the way. But then call it what you want, business culture. So a crisis like this would normally be have the lawyers uh, really driving the strategy, right? And so what you had was what what needed to be what needed to occur was that the foreign company needed to take responsibility and take accountability. Okay. And they also needed to think about how to protect essentially the face of their Chinese joint venture. Okay. Mm. Basically, what you had was lawyers crafting statements that were so legal, legalistic, and so, I'll say, culturally insensitive that, I mean, not only was it not an apology, right, because lawyers would say, well, that, you know, will expose us to risk and litigation and things like that. They so angered their joint venture client because it a joint venture partner because it really started to pull them into the mix you know that they did not want to be that then they had to escalate things their global ceo actually had to get on a plane and come to china and do sort of an apology tour that really from a reputation standpoint net net ended up harming them even more so oh. it was just this confluence of <laughs> You know, we're going to handle it from headquarters. We're really not going to trust or empower anybody in the market. And then you lose all of that kind of radar and intelligence gathering capabilities to make the the right and smart decisions. I think you just led us down the road of the question is, what does a chief corporate affairs officer do? And I suspect you do that. Yeah, we keep that happening. Right. So I obviously work on, you know, for an agency, for an advisory firm. Right. So we're working with clients. So, you know, I'm overseeing all of our corporate advisory businesses, and that is, you know, corporate affairs, public affairs, management consulting and and research. Right. On the client side, our clients are often the head of corporate affairs for for a big company, the Mm -hmm. chief communications officer, other C-suite leaders, depending on the particular issue or stakeholder. But at the sort of crux of what we do, we look at the kind of societal and marketplace issues that are impacting companies, right? And there's a lot of talk now about geopolitics, AI, sort of the energy transition, misinformation and disinformation and polarization. Those are the sort of uh, political polarization. Those are the issues we look at. And then the, the crossover of that are basically the relationships that companies have with their various stakeholders, be it their employees, policymakers, uh, investors, others, in the, you know, participants in the marketplace. So it's not about, you know, kind of selling a product or service. It's really understanding the issues that impact our clients, where our clients have an impact, and really looking at how to strengthen, uh, shore up, address weaknesses with particular relationships they have with those stakeholder groups. So rewinding that story about the oil and gas spill and how things just kind of got worse as the story continued to unfold, how would have having, having you all or somebody of your, of your industry involved in that prevented or reduced the impact of that problem? 
I think that that question gets to the crux of what I believe myself and my colleagues are sort of expert in. And it is really understanding different stakeholder groups that have a real impact on a company's Mm. success in every way. Again, going back to the ones I listed, each of them, they're not just an audience for communications, right? There's a lot of talk about the stakeholder economy, stakeholder capitalism, and things like that. And the idea that, right, as opposed to the sort of Milton Freeman, you know, primacy of shareholders, right, as sort of the singular stakeholder that a company needs to care about, Mm -hmm. they do need to care about all of these other relationships, not just to be well-liked, but to really be able to maintain a social license, to operate, to ward off risk, to look for, you know, kind of new opportunities. And I think that an understanding of multiple stakeholders it, it is sort of like a political, you know, sensibility, right? A politician mm-hmm. has many different constituencies, right? The firefighters in their community, uh, you know, perhaps the African-American uh, faith-based community, um, you know, soccer moms, you know, whatever it is, right? You've got different constituencies who have different concerns. You're not going to make everybody happy. You're not going to say, hopefully, yes to every different group and constituency mm-hmm. and what they want. But under having some sense-making about what each one's expectations are of you, having some relationships and being able to, you know, have show up in a way that engenders trust and credibility with each of them, whether, you know, you got good news or bad news or things like that. That kind of political state sensibility, I think, is what companies need to do increasingly to manage these different stakeholder relationships. So what is the best way to deliver bad news? Be honest. And be in front of it. When I was mentioning in the in the 2000s, I my you know as a practitioner, I oversaw the global corporate responsibility and sustainability practice again for another big communications firm. And at that point in the early 2000s, when the word corporate responsibility was you know mentioned, usually what it meant was oh you know there's like kids. In the supply chain, you know, we've discovered child labor. Right, there's child you know, labor making. There's, there's child labor, or yeah, you've had yeah. some terrible environmental, you know, disaster or things like that. And some smart companies started to realize that a kind of unlock for trust and credibility was to become a credible source of information themselves about the good, the bad, and the ugly of their own impact you know, on social and environmental issues, right? And now you see companies produce these, you know, sustainability reports, right? A lot of that ends up being, quite honestly, sometimes PR fluff. They want to go out and tell good stories. But the companies that approach that kind of reporting and disclosure and transparency about social and environmental impacts in a similar way that they do around financial performance, you know, here's here were mm. goals and targets that we set, Here were the goals and targets that we met or we missed. If Mm -hmm. the companies that are a credible source of information about those sorts of topics usually engender more trust. Makes sense. It's a very more, it's a much more proactive versus, hey, our handle was caught in the proverbial cookie jar on our supply chain. Exactly. Now it's like, no, 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 We're, we're being proactive. We're finding the problems and we're actually going to tell you all about them and and show you how we're making progress. Yeah. And now that whatever a strategic decision, you know, in the past, this was really a 
voluntary strategic decision for companies in terms of how transparent they were about these topics. And now kind of events outside of the control of companies are accelerating this. I mean, one thing is, is that what you're seeing increasingly now, you know, the topics that used to be called CSR and sustainability are often, you know, referred to in the ESG context, right? And so now what you're seeing is, is kind of de facto regulation forward more and more disclosure about these topics in terms of a company's performance, right? We're seeing that being looked at at the US SEC. Brussels is absolutely sort of, you know, requiring de facto disclosure for any company, wherever they're headquartered, if they're doing business in Europe, right? So so that's driving this to become more just kind of table stakes at minimum standards. And then of course, you know, just what's happened with technology in all ways and forms, I mean, there's just radical transparency that occurs just at a moment's notice that if a company, you know, isn't at some minimum threshold of being a credible source of information, they're going to be caught on the back foot when, you know, somebody is posting a video or, or you know, doing whatever they're doing on social media about that company's performance. Yeah, they're, they're coming for you leaders, right? Yeah. The people yeah. that use your products, like you, you got to be proactive on this stuff. Now I go to your website, I go to your LinkedIn page, I go to Weber Shanwick's page, and I see the word earned yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Uh, not something I would expect to see for PR communications, et cetera, et cetera. Why are you using earned all the time and why is that important? So th that's a little bit of a, a, a play on words in our business. Right. So there's all sorts of if you think about it, there's all sorts of essentially media that one can engage on. Right. There's paid media. I can go take out a yeah. banner ad on a website or a billboard in Times Square. Right. Pay to play. Pay to play. Uh, yeah. Right. You know, yeah. tell you about how fabulous I am. Right. And then there is owned media, which is increasingly important. Literally, WeberShanwick.com, right? Those media, right? Every company has to sort of be a media company now. And so you've got your owned assets, right? Your mm -hmm. companies are often operating like publishers and content creators themselves. Then there's shared and social. And that is what it says. There's, there's social media and you engage, right? The last one, which is really kind of the bread and butter of PR is is called earned media, right? And earned media is when I pick up the phone and I pitch a reporter to tell a story about my company and it's not a paid for ad, it's in, you know, editorial coverage. And, you know, the reason that reporter is gonna tell that story and we're gonna earn that coverage is because somehow it's a new product that's newsworthy. It's a product or service that's in the context of a larger news trend or things like that. So that's a kind of, you know, that's industry nomenclature, earned media. But what we think about in terms of earned is that larger concept of earning trust, right? Earning relationships, earning credibility, and the behaviors that kind of go behind that, right? And, and we all know, mm -hmm. right? How do you earn trust with somebody? Well, you tell them the truth, you know what I mean? And you, you don't approach them as a kind of, from a transactional standpoint, you approach that as a kind of real relationship that's going to exist for a longer period of time on a continuum. So the ethos of earned, which again, starts with, you know, picking up that phone, pitching that journalist to say, this is something that you should write about. 
we just see kind of bubbling out into all sorts of ways that you engage with all sorts of stakeholder groups. Is earned a culture-based philosophy inside the organization, or is that something just for the front of the business? No, it's, it's absolutely. There's a phrase, in advertising, you pay, and in PR, you pray, right? Because... <laughs> Right. Because okay. you don't know. I mean, like, again, if I if I go call the Wall Street Journal and say I want a full page ad and I'm, you know, wiring you whatever it is these days, eighty thousand dollars, I get that ad. And as, as long as I don't say something, you know, crazy, I can say whatever the heck I want in that. Mm-hmm. You know, when you pick up the phone and you call a business reporter who's on deadline, who knows your business as well as you do, and you're pitching them on something that hopefully, you know, burnishes your reputation you know, you've got to have something that's credible and trustworthy uh, and newsworthy as well. So you got to earn it. And that that is our ethos. So what's your advice for leaders out there who are hearing about this for the first time? What's the first step for leading your team to earn? I think that the, the, the most important thing conceptually, a lot of times leaders themselves and organizations, you know, they've got this sort of like, hero narrative that they want to get out there. If only people knew all the fabulous things that we're doing, right? And there's two principles that I talk about with companies in terms of having the most resonant narrative. One thing is, is that fairly or unfairly, going and giving a journalist or, or anybody else a kind of book report on all the thing, all the good things you've already accomplished is just not gonna really get people excited. What they're gonna get excited about is when you tell them that you're looking ahead and you see complexity in whatever it is, commercially, societally, from a regulatory standpoint, and you lay out some kind of man to the moon type goals, right? And I'll give you, I'll give you an example. This happened a number of years ago now, but Coca-Cola, Right. When this is a a number of years back when just, you know, everybody was very focused on packaging and recycling and the sort of what what we can do to kind of, you know, just reduce uh, the impact of packaging. Coca-Cola stood up and they said, we are going to recycle the same number of cans and bottles, basically, that our entire global system puts out there. Now, we may recycle some Pepsi bottles and some Budweiser bottles, right? You know, things like that. But we're going to we're going to go and we're going to minimize the impact of our packaging on the world. Now, when they made that announcement, what did they not say? They didn't say exactly when they would achieve that goal. And they didn't also say how they were going to do it from a kind of technical standpoint and things like that. But they they, they put themselves on the line mm-hmm. and they said, look, this is something that we're publicly committing to. It was a message that they sent to their entire bottling system, to their employees, to their you know business partners and, and you know to regulators and all that, that this was something they were going to hold themselves accountable to. So that is definitely something that, you know, just looking ahead, being able to put it on the line on commitments you're going to make, and then, you know, being a source of information on your progress on making those sorts of things. So that's number one. Then I think that number two, and this goes to more my working with individual CEOs and leaders, they want to tell their story, 
right? And they want people to focus on them and what they're doing. You know, not usually because they're egomaniacs, because they just, you know, they're doing a lot of things and and they want to, you know, they want to get that story out. That's an important uh, responsibility of a leader. We're always pushing our clients, though, to put their story in a broader context, right? And to kind of make their story, not that it shouldn't be significant, but a relatively speaking, smaller part of a larger story. Again, whatever it is about societal trends, about complex issues, be it, you know, geopolitics or how AI is completely disrupting society, telling their story in the context of a broader trend. You know, companies think about all their stakeholders and there's a PowerPoint chart that's used in every company around the world where there's the company in the center of a kind of orbit and then they're being orbited, surrounded by all their different stakeholders I actually think companies need to think about that or that that chart differently. It's society at the center and the company is one of many stakeholders orbiting the issues, the challenges, the opportunities, the aspirations of society. A powerful way to reframe your vision. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so so good. Well, we can keep going down that road, but I want to dig into some other stories. Sure. So specifically, Mongolian stoves. Mongolian stoves. All right. You did your Mongolian research well. Mongolian stoves. What is it? So when I was at uh, Burson Marsteller, I was I oversaw the mainland China market. Okay. You know, big global networks have wholly owned offices in, you know, markets like China, right? Markets like Mongolia, you know, we don't necessarily have a wholly owned office, but, you know, we're a global agency. We work with global companies. We want to be able to service them wherever they may need, you know, some help with media, with government relations, whatever it is. So I went to Mongolia to find an affiliate partner, you know, a partner that I felt good about, you know, the, the quality of their work. We could do business. What's the best PR leader in Mongolia that I can find? Exactly. And I met with all, I met the entire PR industry of Ulaanbaatar. <laughs> <laughs> Mongolia is big, but not Mongolia, heavily populated, right? Yeah, it's not big. And and one of the reasons we wanted to have uh, an affiliate there was at the time, Mongolia was really not uncovering, but basically tapping its natural resources. I, I believe right now, Mongolia is the single largest source of copper in the world. They're a huge source of various fossil fuels, uh, coal and natural gas and things like that. So, this was all happening. And, you know, so global companies were, you know, paying attention and somehow they were impact, you know, they were they were making, um, you know, contact with the Mongolian market. So we needed an affiliate there. So I went up there and I, you know, started to interview all these affiliates and they kind of, you know, of course, wanted to kind of show me how great they were. So one of them, and you know, there was a little bit of a language problem. You know, there was a young kid who sort of spoke a little bit of English, but I didn't really understand exactly what was going on. All of a sudden, I was in the back of a Humvee going about 90 miles per hour on the only highway in Ulaanbaatar, kind of just looked like we were just driving off into the mountains. And it occurred to me, like, am I ever going to come back? But luckily, about 20 minutes later, we landed at a little village. There was a stage that was set up and there was a woman singing 
And there were all these farmers and, and, and all these kind of guys. And then you could t- you can tell politicians everywhere because they were in front of the TV cameras. And there was like the mayor of this village was there and things like that. And so I said, well, what is this? Well, it turned out that because of all these kind of resource riches coming online, the Mongolian population, which, of course, is greatly dispersed and they're literally herders and, you know, out in the, the, the flats and things like that. They were all coming into the city. They were living in these just terrible, terrible kind of slums, and they were cooking and heating their homes with these very dirty, burning coal stoves. So actually, the United States, a part of their uh, foreign aid was to distribute these much cleaner burning stoves and significantly subsidize the price of it. I mean, something like, you know, they'd subsidize like 80% of the price. But of course, like any kind of like social change, like, you know, people just they kind of stick to their ways. So this entire event was basically a social marketing event to get people to convert to their stoves. And what I was told was literally they didn't use this phrase, but the singer was like the Whitney Houston of Mongolia. And she was singing a song about like, go get a clean burning stove. It's really good (laughs) for your health and all that stuff. So again, I'm a PR guy. I'm always about tactics. And so I said, uh, offhand, I said to him, hey, you know, what you should do is you should get a Mongolian chef, a famous one, and you should write a cookbook for all the things that you can cook in your new clean burning stove. So, you know, again, PR guys are always just giving tactical advice that gets ignored. So that was it. So I met with all the, I met with all of them. I said, I'm going to go back. I'll make a final decision. Three months later, actually picked those guys and I flew up to sign the paperwork. So as they're doing it, they, they haul out this big box and it wasn't a book, but it was a pamphlet. And there was this guy in a chef's uniform and he had sort of, he was pointing to all of these, uh, you know, uh, dishes. They had done oh. it, man. They'd gotten the most famous <laughs> chef in Mongolia to do a cookbook to, you know, show for the stoves. Celebrity crosses international <laughs> barriers. Exactly. Your local heroes. Yeah. Oh, what a wonderful story. And so you saved the environment in Mongolia with one idea. That's right. With Whitney Houston and the, the, the Mongolian Whitney Houston and the Mongolian Emerald. That's exactly right. Or Wolfgang Puck or something exactly. like that. That's so good. Are you looking to increase sales? grow your brand, and share your leadership message, then check out our business podcast program. Each week, more people listen to podcasts than have Netflix accounts, and one-third of the U.S. population listens to podcasts regularly. So your customers and team are already listening to podcasts. It should be yours. Discover our five-step profitable podcast framework and what results you can expect for your company by setting up a 20-minute call with my team at benleads.com slash schedule. That's benleads.com slash schedule. Next prompt, Al Gore. Al Gore. Just saw him a week ago in Davos. Yeah, hadn't seen him in a number of years. And uh, it was great. It was great. Do you you refer to him as Al? You know, it's so funny. I think now... The majority of people do, but you know, I so I worked on Al Gore's campaign. I was his regional finance guy, his regional fundraiser for you know, kind of the three years of his presidential campaign. Mm-hmm. You know, the lead up, the the primary, and then the general election and and the recount. 
So I oversaw New York and New Jersey and Connecticut, which at the time did about 25% of the national fundraising take. So he was in New York, Oof. you know, every week or 10 days, right? And also at the time, his his uh, his uh, his oldest daughter, Corinna, lived there with her young family. So got to know him or got a, I got to be around him. I had the, uh, the, the opportunity and the honor to be around him a lot. What do you think leaders can learn from losing a presidential election? I think they, and I think this was probably true of Gore. I think that what leaders who have such public losses experience, and, and it's often political leaders, we get business leaders, is the places where they were inauthentic. And I'll give you a good example. So we all know, I mean, we knew this before he, you know, before he even became vice president, he was associated with environmental issues, right? And mm -hmm. environmental leadership and things like that. And clearly, we only have seen more of that in such a powerful way since, uh, you know, after the 2000 election. It's a little story, and maybe I'm conflating it, but I don't think so. Again, so I was the New York fundraising guy. We would do events all the time. At one point, this is back in, you know, the late 90s. We were going to do an event in what was a green building, which at the time was sort of a novel idea, right? You know what I mean? Now, you know, sort of. There weren't that many. There weren't that many. <laughs> it was kind of interesting. It was novel. It was mm -hmm. down in the financial district, as I recall. And we were going to do a, a, a fundraising event, you know, and I remember calling uh, down, right? You know, so when you coordinate the vice president, you know, you're working with advance, you're working with with the media, you're working with with um, White House operations and things like that. And then I'm the guy on the ground, you know, coordinating uh, the the fundraising activities. So I remember saying on one of these trip calls, "Well, man, we're going to be in a green building, and you know, this sounds like a really good media opportunity, right? To connect the dots with with the vice president's, you know, environmental leadership and and things like that." So again, I'm not attributing this to Al Gore himself, but the answer was, yeah, we don't want to do that because we're concerned that if we associate ourselves too much with green topics, we're going to alienate business, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, they're talking about the guy we all know, right? Who then yeah, is it's out, out there. there already? He's out there, and so <laughs> I, I, so I don't want to put personal blame at his feet, right? But mm -hmm. whatever forces conspired in that kind of situation for him to not be authentically who he was at that moment in time, you know what I mean? And that was probably just one example. Yeah, it's one example, but it is, it, it, and leaders struggle with this, no matter how yeah. maybe you as a leader, Al as a leader, yeah, really trying to convey what's important to him but can you get that across your organization? Well, yeah. It's do, your, do your people working in the field, are they aligned with that? Can they execute on that? And are they bought in on it? Yeah. And at that time, I would have been shocked if everyone was buying in on it because, I mean, let's face it, no one really thought it was that big a deal. No. Well, not, I'll say no, but a lot of the, the, the world did not buy in. They were arguing if global warming was even happening. Yeah. So and, and, why yeah. would you care? So I think it's really hard. Anyway, go ahead. And just to wade into it, I mean, look, I've, so I've professed my, my, my partisanship here and, you know, I, I'm happy to dive into it or, or, or not just sort of in these polarized times, I'll invoke Donald Trump, 
um, mm-hmm. who, you know, I'm not a fan of Donald Trump's, but actually, you know, I don't think I'm the first guy to to observe this. He is so authentic in many ways. I mean, in such a bizarre way. Again, I'm I'm not an objective observer here. I think that, you know, Donald Trump often is telling lies and mistruths, but there is a certain authenticity to him. The things he's willing to say that are the truth, it is that's what differentiates him from other politicians. And as I, you know, I'm on the, you know, board of a big Democratic super PAC and, you know, everybody is constantly wringing their hands about, well, you know, how can he get away with that? And how can he get away with this? We've been doing that since the election started in 2015. Mm -hmm. And I think sometimes what we miss on our side of the aisle is people have already priced in. He's a buffoon. He makes things up. But they're so frustrated with the inauthenticity of so many other mainstream politicians on both sides of the aisle that his authenticity is just like, you know, what they're gravitating to. There is something there, obviously. Yeah. And, you know, this is sort of an evergreen episode, so it'll be interesting to see five years from now where we're at. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, there is something where he has not gone away. He, no. Most people, they lose a presidential election, they ain't coming back, and they surely yeah. are not going to be leading uh, the polls. No, and, and, and somehow something's something. happening there. And who knows what's going to happen. So let's take out Democrat, Republican, who yeah. you support. Don't the listeners to get caught up in that. Right. So authenticity, and you mentioned Trump. You don't have to use him as, as an example. But yeah. what, like if a leader is listening and they're like, well, God, you know, I I want to be authentic. How do, what's the, <laughs> it's a weird question, but... Yeah. What is the first step if you're a CEO? Yeah. You're like you're watching, maybe you're watching Biden, you're watching Trump, you're watching other leaders as potential role models, but you don't want to go there. Yeah. Uh, what's your first step to really being an authentic leader? I personally, again, I've had the the the, the privilege and the good fortune to advise a lot of CEOs of very, very, very large companies, right? Fortune 50 companies, you know, people, companies whose market cap is larger than economies. And so mm-hmm. the, the complexity, right, that that these individuals have to deal with and the prioritization, right? You, you can't, you, you can't personally focus on everything, but the construct that I have sort of formed in my head and that I've seen good leaders apply is what I would call is there's two sort of pathways to leadership. There is top-down leadership and there is bottom-up leadership. Mm-hmm. And, right, I mean, again, top-down, you're sort of sitting up there at 35,000 feet and you're making big proclamations, right? Something similar to the example with Coca-Cola or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and the edict kind of goes out and you you have the... We're going we're gonna to recycle all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like in your man to the moon goals. Yeah. So so the bullet you you're using the bully pulpit to sort of broadcast as far and wide as possible. So that's top-down leadership. And then that hopefully kind of cascades across your organization out into whatever other parts uh of the economy or 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 society that it needs to. So there's times for top-down leadership, and that's usually when you are going to hold yourself accountable 
for something in a big way that could be scary and audacious. Okay. Bottom-up leadership is when you do get your hands dirty and you do do kind of in one way, shape or form retail politicking. So that is walking the factory floor. You know what I mean? That is Mm -hmm. going and visiting customers. That is going, you know, I work for a big industrial client that had a very, very significant accident in a small community. Okay. And it greatly impacted that community. The community itself is, you know, just a super small, a couple tens of thousands of people. That CEO walked the streets of that community and he went and sat with families. He got yelled at by families. He had some families that didn't let him into their house, but he needed to be on the ground to kind of make sense of things, right? You know, and, and, and to sort of experience things firsthand. But again, if you're the CEO of a Fortune 50, Fortune 100 company, you know, you can't be walking the streets of a local community three days a week or even, you know, more than one day every quarter or something like that. So you've got to make those decisions. When do I need to lead from a top down perspective and when do I need to lead from a bottom up perspective? What is Trump doing right now? Good question. I think he is. I actually think that he is where he was much more bottom up in as a sort of typical populist uh, is Mm -hmm. uh, in, in, in his early days and much of his presidency, he, he thought his, his biggest flaw, but his biggest flaw from a governance standpoint is he, he didn't understand the role and the, the presence and power of institutions. He thought he could, pers- right? It was like, if I'm in that meeting, I'm going to fix something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He thought he, he, over, he over-indexed on the power of the individual as president, as opposed to the role mm. that the president plays in governing massive institutions. So he erred on the side of what I would say is more bottom-up and that, you know, he won political points for that because that ticked a lot of the authenticity box. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But again, I, I'm trying not to be partisan. He wasn't good at governing. He didn't know how to pull the levers of government and of institutions as large and complex as ours. And so in a lot of ways, he didn't get a lot of his agenda done, I think, because he was just simply bad at governing, not a partisan state. So on the flip side, and you look at Biden, how is Biden top down versus bottom up in your in your model? How does that? I think he's more top. I think he's more top down for the most part. I think that you know, for for better and for worse, I think he's a, you know he's a he's committed his entire life to public service. I think with good intentions, but I do think that he you know put aside all the age stuff, he is a member of the elite political class and literally has been since his mid twenties. And that's just, and he's, look, he's gotten things done. Uh, I think he got a lot of things done personally speaking for the country in this, this um, uh, uh, term of his, but he is absolutely a top-down politician. And I think that, that, I mean, I, I do personally believe the age thing is, is a real thing, but I think again, there may be a little bit too much noise about the age thing and people are missing the signal that 
people are really fed up with a sort of typical, you know, kind of, you know, from the elite top down leader. But what I'll say about Trump is, is that if, if, if one does not agree with his agenda and policies, to me, the concern is he's going to take a much more top-down approach from an effectiveness standpoint, from a governance standpoint. Like he's he's gonna he's gonna be much better at governing if he's if he's elected this time than he was the last time. It's important to know one of the things I'm taking away is really an effective leader, a CEO needs access to both of these. Yeah. Leading and the most successful ones will strike the balance based on the situation, like your CEO yeah. that went to that small town. Yeah. Um, or you can have just an advisor like Chris backing yeah. up. Yeah. Well, it's funny. And, <laughs> and, and if you, you didn't ask, but I'll I'll answer. Um, typical PR guy, I'll, I'll I'll set out the premise of my own question. But I think a big impediment to especially for big companies, and this is even true of our company. Big companies are incredibly fragmented and siloed, and they are a collection of different turfs. And actually, the top of each of the, if you think of each of those turfs as mm -hmm. pyramids, the people who sit at the top of each pyramid of a turf, whether it's a geography, a, a business unit, a corporate function, those people are usually the people who literally comprise the, the leadership team of a CEO. And my observation has been, you know, having, you know, sort of sat in these meetings and watching the interplay. Oftentimes, I have been shocked at how the only person in the entire meeting who genuinely has a self-interest in the entire organization operating in a singular integrated way is the CEO. And that's not to say that the, the team around him or her is disloyal, but they are coming with their own turf agenda, politics, you know, things like that. And the thing I've seen CEO where, where, where CEOs have really gotten hampered, especially in crisis situations, is where they can't get their organization to all truly, you know, in an uncomfortable way be committed to what is in the best interest of the entire organization. Let's end it there. Let's land the plane. That is a great thing for leaders to sit with. Um, because if you're not thinking about that challenge, or you're maybe you just you just gave them awareness, Chris, that, hey, they have this challenge. Like, oh yeah. And yeah. if sometimes they ignore it, but then you maybe you ask them, well, think about when you were a divisional vice president. How are you thinking? Exactly. You were competing with the other one. And it's one thing to compete, but it's it's another to like, yeah, I kind of hope they fail. Yeah. You know, and that's the mentality sometimes. Yeah. That's dangerous. It is. What's your parting thought here as we wrap, Chris? My parting thought is probably every in the context of leadership, it's probably been said. Uh, you know, in different settings, podcasts, you know, print newspapers, you know, uh, uh, blogs, you know, uh, uh, carrier pigeons, that the times today require uh, a different type of leader than they did in the past, whenever that was. I think I may be stating the obvious. I think that that statement 
is geometrically more true now because you have, Mm. I do think, a confluence of forces. The degree of polarization in most of our societies and most of our, you know, kind of, you know, different parts of the world has never been higher. Comes in different forms, but polarization and, and people on different sides of issues truly thinking that the other side is a real enemy. It's never been higher. You know, obviously all the 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 impact and disruption that is going to come from AI, right? The climate crisis. So I think that, you know, it's not to say, oh, there's more risk currently. It's the kind, I mean, I'm not the one who came up with this. It's the poly crisis. It's the combination of risks and trends and you know, things that are going to impact your organization, not just for bad, possibly for good. So it requires leaders to really bring together many different perspectives, uh, areas of expertise and sensibilities to make decisions. But you got to make decisions, too. And you got to be definitive. But I, I do think that, you know, that that sort of multiple perspectives and expertise as a response to the poly crisis, that's pretty unique for our times. And so that I think is where you're gonna just see leaders uh, you know, succeeding or failing. Thanks for coming on the show today, Chris. Thank you. Would you or your CEO be a good fit for this podcast? If you know a uniquely talented leader who has a story to share and a message to deliver, then we'd love to host them on the show. Go to benleads.com slash apply to fill out a quick form where you can let us know a little bit about yourself and my team will take a look to see if we're a good fit. That's benleads.com slash apply. Ben Fanning is a number one best-selling author, Inc. Magazine columnist, and CEO of the Fanning Group, an international consultancy and corporate training company. To learn how they can help your organization, go to benfanning.com.